CorporalNetwork.com. This episode of the Term Show is brought to you by listeners like you. Thanks for using the Terms Amazon and DNA Classics affiliate links. Welcome to the Tome Book Club. The Tome is a D&D news, reviews, and interview show, and I'm your Tome host, Tracy Hurley. And I'm your co-host, Jeff Greiner. In each book club episode, we discuss one D&D-related book, spoilers be damned, in full book club style. And our book for this month was The Godborn, second in the Sundering Novels by Paul S. Kemp. And joining us in this episode are Jeffrey D. Wynn. Hello. Yay. And Eric Paquette. Hello. And in- and in January, we'll be reading the first half of The Adversary by Aaron M. Evans. And that's up to the end of Chapter 12. And I don't know about you, but I'm looking forward to The Adversary. Yes. <laughs> Me too. For, for many reasons, some of which I think we'll probably get into tonight. Uh, and if you're looking forward to The Adversary and want to join us in the conversation, please don't hesitate to contact us. Send an email or voicemail. Uh, you can do that at thetomeshow at gmail.com or by calling 919-BIZ-TOME. That's 919-B-I-Z-T-O-M-E. Or you, if you want, let us know that you want to join in as a guest, if there's room, we will welcome you on. All right. It's time to get into this book. Should we start with general thoughts? It wasn't a Drist book and it wasn't an Elminster book, so I kind of liked it. Okay. <laughs> had, now, Jeff, had you read the previous any any previous Arifus Kale books? No, but I have listened to all of your reviews. Okay, so, so you're I, I, am, I am I am well versed with the character. <laughs> um, not really, yeah. But uh, I was I was able to get the gist of it, and uh, um, I did actually uh, listen to the Return of the Arch Wizards uh, trilogy, which is an old. Very old uh, trilogy earlier this year, so so I was familiar with the um, Shadow Var oh, okay. uh, side say, of things and 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 the whole uh, Tonthol family. Okay, I, I was gonna say I was confused for a second because so I'm like I don't think Paul Kemp wrote those, but no, you're you're referencing the the Netherese specifically. Yes, I'm also uh, sleep deprived, so if I occasionally go off on a tangent that doesn't appear to make sense, um, Rutabaga, no, no, nobody will notice. Bacon monkey. <laughs> <laughs> we'll just assume it's the normal Jeff Wynn ramblings. Yes. Okay. Good. Yeah. For me, it was also my. It was my first experience for Paul S. Camp and uh, K, uh, the KL trilogy. Mm-hmm. Well, KL, the KL series, and uh, the, I have mixed feelings. There's stuff that I didn't like and stuff that I liked. So, mm-hmm. not, I, think, I think that's fair. So, and Tracy, before we get into the deep subject that matters that need to be discussed, and I and I know you want to get to just general thoughts of, in the book. Um, so I knew from our last uh, time we read Paul. Yeah, we, were, we read the original Erebus Kale trilogy, the the first three books. Out of, this is like the seventh. We read that. Right. That was, I think, our first book club series. Is is reading those those books. And I definitely again saw his uh, his like of using more Greco-Roman myth and stuff. 
mm-hmm. like throughout in, in many different areas, not just with the gods. Mm-hmm. And I also elsewhere learned that this was originally planned as a trilogy that he had, my understanding is that he had taken what was supposed to be a trilogy and made it into one book. Oh, that explains some things actually for me. Yeah. And I thought it might, and I just wanted to bring it up now. Cause I think uh, some of the stuff we might talk about later could be influenced by it, even though mm-hmm. I, I read in another interview with the author that he felt very, like he felt pretty good about how stuff came out that mm-hmm. he might add it some stuff. But I, but in particular, uh, how uh, how we were kind of expected to just understand that the relationships were there, and maybe they didn't, he didn't have quite as much time mm-hmm. to pencil them out. Well, yeah, and, and that that explains like the last third of the book feels very different than the first two thirds of the book. You right, know, it feels like it's telling a, a different story that very much yeah. comes out of the previous two thirds, but it's a different story, you know, and that that, right. ex- that might explain why. Yeah, and it was hard because I had only read the the first trilogy, and you're saying this is now book seven. So yeah. I was like, "Why is he under ice? I don't know." Yeah, there was another trilogy in the middle um, <laughs> that I over the summer I I got the audiobook versions of those and were able to listen to them because I knew I'd, I'd be reading this one and or listening to this one anyway. So I wanted to have that that background. Um, right. So, but in the first trilogy, is Magadan in there? I believe so. Okay, so that wasn't a new character for you. No. Okay. Okay, good. Yeah, I find that um, generally speaking, my thoughts are I think I'm realizing with Paul Kemp's books and with the Ervis Kale series now, I think I like the stories more than I do the characters, if that makes sense. Sure. I mean, he's dealing with subject matter that generally interests me. You know, I like meddling gods in in my realm stories. Um, And I've always had. I don't know if affinity is the right word, but I've always had an interest in seeing the machinations of devils and things in fantasy stories as well. And, th- and this gives me a lot, of, a lot of both of those. Right. So what other things do we like before we, we move into some other topics? I like that it felt like being part of the Sundering. Mm-hmm. Stuff, stuff seems to be moving the door. The world is shaping. The world is changing. You're, you're and you're feeling it in this book compared to the companions. Which mm-hmm. oh, so you 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 feel that that's that gets into another one of my questions. Actually, though, what does this story add to the Sundering? What more do we know about the Sundering because of this book? I mean, we know that that. Yeah. The Netherese are are invading and starting a war in the Daylands, and that they're collecting yeah. chosen because right. some something's going on, and that gods can come back from the dead or sort of dead. Yeah. yeah, but they've done they've done that for ages. I know. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, there's changes that's happening that we're knowing. I mean, we. Basically, in the book itself, we saw the return or the remake of Mask itself. So, yeah, I mean, well, sort of. I mean, Mask Divinity passed on to to Riven anyway, right? Riven, but he seems to be Mask, so it's oh. complicated. <laughs> yeah, I know what else we get. We know that all of our favorite characters from all of the Forgotten Realms novels can still be in the Forgotten Realms under after the Sundering, maybe. Well, we but we've known that. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it was just it was more because. I remember talking. We t- which author did we talk to? 
was it Ed Greenwood talking about how like they had to make all these uh, reasons up to bring forward characters, yeah. like so that because they did that huge time jump with fourth edition to the point now that I don't know that there's a single major character from you know pre spell plague that's actually gone anymore. Like I think now right. they've, they've all managed to come back. It's right, because like now they're just chosen. <laughs> Right. Well, so, some in some cases, or reincarnated, or came right. back as blue flame ghosts, or you know whatever. But it seems like they've all pretty much come. I can't think of a single you know really popular character that was that was sacrificed to the spell plague to the point that the spell plague is starting to become quickly meaningless. Right. Right. We're just going to bring back all the characters we want want regardless of the tragedy. Right. So I know it's kind of the same as what's happened in the past, but I feel like it's also a little. I don't know. I think it's. I, I think it feels contrived. Yeah. Yeah. Or, I or agree. Least, or at least they're trying to say, okay, the spell plague event did not happen, so we're just pushing everybody a, a hundred years. Yeah, but I don't think they're willing to say the spell plague didn't happen. But they're trying. No, no. To, they're trying to have their cake and eat it too. You know, they're trying to say yeah. the spell plague happened, but every everything and everyone you always loved is still around, untouched by it. Yeah. I do like that some of these reasons to me seem a little more thought out than some of the ones I heard from oh. the spell plague. Sure. Yeah, no, and, and I mean, the only characters we had here that survived either are long-lived, like the Shades, right. um, or are have relatively good reasons for it, you know? Erebus, Kale, there's a whole, I mean, there's a whole plot line around that. Um, Dracic Riven becomes a god. Well, yeah, guess what? Gods don't die of old age, you know? Um, so there are some good and and relatively unique, you know, I guess there are some reasons, there are some stories and some reasons that add to the story rather than are just convenient to the story. Yeah. And the whole thing, like I know Vassin wasn't a character before, but being able to have Erebus have his son, but still being the time he needed to be in for other reasons. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, sort of yeah. thing. Now, I, I had some concerns, actually, with how much this adds to the Sundering. And I think you're right, Eric. I think it does start to give us some hints as to what's going on. But I feel like we're two books into the Sundering now. We're a third of the way into the Sundering. And I feel like we're still kind of in the prologue. Like, they keep hinting yep. that something's going to happen. But nothing's actually happened with the Sundering yet. Which well, is part of why I'm so much looking forward yeah. to the adversary because, you know, the second act, the second third of, of a story is usually when, you know, these kinds of things start happening. So I'm really yeah. looking forward to having the Sundering actually happen in the Sundering series. Yeah. No. Because, uh, yeah. Because in comparison to – I felt that in Companions, the Sundering – I didn't feel that the Sundering touched it. Here we're getting hints and starting movements and stuff happening. So – so yes, it seems we finally reached a prologue for it. Yeah, <laughs> we finally this, two books in, we've reached a prologue. Does, yeah. does this book take place after the companions? It's during the same time. Is it? From what I saw, uh, let's see. Do they, mean, do they actually cover the the, uh, the the return of 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 the weave? Like yeah, I don't like they I, did in, in 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 the companions. Did did that actually occur? I can't remember. I, I don't. Remember no, now. having listened to the book twice, I don't recall there ever being a time they mentioned the return of the weave. Um, um, I don't remember. So it's named the Weaveshear, right? Yeah, but it's been named Weaveshear since since yeah a long time ago. Um, so, and I don't remember. 
at the same time, like in the companions, I don't remember them ever mentioning a war in the Dale lands, which wasn't too <laughs> far away from some of those characters. Yeah. Chapter one is set in 1484. And where is the companions? In, what is the companions oh. end? Uh, I think it. I think companions. At the end start, is fourteen eighty four. Yeah. Yep. So, so the Godborn actually picks up exactly, almost exactly where the companions leaves off. Yes. Okay. Interesting. Well, that that kind of works then, because maybe the war hadn't really gotten going by the going by the time Caterbury and, and whoever had left um, that area. Okay. So that means Vassin is older than Caterbury and company. Yes. I mean, if you don't include their first lives, yes. Well, he he is 34 years old because he was born in 1450. Wow, I'm the same age as Vason. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I knew he was at least 30. Yeah, I knew he was 30. So, uh... Yeah. Well, that's, that's, that's interesting to see how those fit together. But yeah, so I'm ready for The Sundering to start. You know, we're a third of the way into it, into the series called The Sundering, and I'm, um, I'm ready for it to get going. So I'm hoping that we get some more hints as to what the actual larger meta storyline is with uh, Aaron's book, Aaron M. Evans' book, The the, Son- the Adversary, next. All right. We were, we were on likes when we got off on that tangent about the sundering. I uh, know. I'm sorry. No, it's fine because that was one of my other questions was about the, the sundering, and so I wanted to go into that. Uh, Jeff, did we get into your likes? Um, I I liked the characters. Uh, okay. I liked the uh, the uh, Oracle. He was he was fun. Um, yeah. Yeah. He was he was a very very positive character. I I, I enjoyed it whenever he was on the, on the screen. That's it's interesting um, because the Oracle had like two personalities going on, mm-hmm. and I noticed Tracy from your writing because uh, you wrote about the the book a little bit on your blog, and I cheated and, re- and read those articles. Um, and you mentioned the Oracle in one of those articles, and and I think you mentioned that he was what was it eccentric or. What was the word you used to describe him? That there, oh, I forget. That there was something wrong with him sometimes, you know? Like he was starting to lose his mind. Right. Well, he did and He did come across – I don't know if it's the word I used, but he did come across kind of senile sometimes. Senile, that was the word, yeah. <laughs> and I was wondering about that. Did anybody else pick up on what was actually going on there? Because if, if you've read the, the previous three books, he's not actually senile. Uh, I, I, I have not read the previous books, right. but I, I – think I, I'm the only one who has. I, I, uh, I, I got the – impression that that he was actually like mentally disabled possibly from a a childhood uh, mm-hmm. trauma yeah um he was a child in the in in the sixth book and and his father was you know the this great paladin of of a monitor or Lathander or whatever that has this crisis of faith or whatever and and there's a, a whole storyline there um, yeah. but the dad spends a lot of time protecting this child who is I, I would probably describe as fairly severely autistic hmm. and, and then ends up being you know but in this book we find out ends up being you know an oracle to a god and 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 changes personalities when when he's channeling that that ability hmm. so so I, so Tracy I don't think it's an issue of him being senile I think when he's not channeling his god he's that autistic guy Maybe I think that's what they're trying to, to, to but portray. At the same time, if you just came in on this book, which a lot of people are, he oh, sure. comes across as senile. No, I agree, but I don't think yeah, that, yeah. I don't think that's what, what, what that's what he was trying to portray. I I was picturing him more as the 
influences of getting the visions from the gods was causing some some stress on his mm. own personal self. Mm-hmm. Uh, basically, in reference to a TV show called The Almighty Johnsons, where the Norse gods are in normal form, and uh, what's his name? The god of doors and seers. Anyways, yeah, you, uh, they, I, you, know, you know more uh, Norse mythology than I. Okay. Yeah, Hemdal. Uh, incarnation of Hemdal had these problems because since he could see everything and those, and that can't be contained in a mortal form that they were saying. So I was getting the same relationship seeing from the Oracle that maybe because he's getting so much power from the gods, it's causing some strain onto his mental self, mm-hmm. which. After so long, it's starting to it, it's it's really starting to break down. Well, and that's that was the story of the character of, that was sort of the oracle in the first uh, Erebus Kale trilogy. I don't even remember that Tracy, the guy that was all about the numbers. Yeah, he wasn't an, an oracle of a monitor. He was an oracle of Agma. Um, but it was that was the story with that character is that his vision or whatever was also kind of driving him nutty. Yeah, wasn't it true in that series too that he used the time travel to the Paul did Kemp used time travel? I thought they went back to see the equation just before something happened. I don't remember that, but I could be wrong. But but Kemp definitely seems to like using this sort of concept of a vague prophecy. Right? You know, there's some sort of oracle that can see things, and it and it raises one of my big questions: is this book really this book? And, and as I think about it now, the previous books, while I enjoy the idea of of gods and things meddling in the affairs of, of men, it really sets up this fate versus choice dilemma, doesn't it? Right. So I think you right. could argue that that Paul Kemp in these in these books make a really strong argument for. You know what? In the realms, it's fate. Like these guys had no choice as to what that was going to happen. It was it was determined long ago by the gods. They they've already determined what was going to happen. Although the oracle says that he does he knows how it starts, but not how it ends, mm-hmm. which does lead a little bit to choice. Yeah. But mask but, knew how mask knew how it would end when he when he set the whole thing up. Maybe I mean, I mean he laid out various small little things a hundred years ago. That ended up playing out exactly the way he wanted it to. Well, but oh. is, does that mean that it had to play out that way, or he just got lucky? Like everyone has their things that they lay out. Mm-hmm. Is Mass the god like of thieves and yes. sneaking? Okay, so could he, since he planned out something, but such in a subtle way, the Oracle could not see how it ended because it was veiled, veiled by mm. by Mask itself. His machines were so subtle that it looked to be choice, but it was not. Or it could be actually just be choice. So, yeah, well, I, think the, that's the the, is, I think that's the interesting okay. debate to have, right? I think that's the interesting discussion to figure out. So when, so chess masters, when they play, they often set up things like way in advance. Uh, so sometimes if a person follows the trail that they expect them to, it looks like there was never any choice. But then other times you can see that there are choices and you can uh, defeat a chess master. Right. And and the only thing I would throw in to – because I, I could buy that every now and then. But it seems to me that, that Kemp is doing that in this series a lot. 
You know, there's, well, yeah. there's multiple oracles, multiple, multiple prophecies, and every single prophecy ends up playing out exactly the way it was prophesied. But not every god gets their way either. No, but not every god is providing a prophecy. But the gods that give prophecies. Well, that's not true. Shar always believes that that uh, the the cycle will restart. Yeah, the cycle of night. The cycle, the cycle did restart, and then they shut it down. Right, they had to restart the cycle in order to, in order in order to 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 stop it. Right, but not, it didn't go all the way as expected because they rewrote the story. Right. No, actually, absolutely. But but I feel like that. I feel but like. I think, so one question is: Does Kemp only concentrate on the prophecies that are going to come true? Well, sure, I suppose. I mean, you could argue there's a million different prophecies, right? Shar never provided a follower or whatever with a prophecy, right? It was all, it's always these oracles that are providing right. prophecies. And the, the prophecies of the oracles have, have always come true. Right. And, and I, yeah. I don't know. I feel, I feel like there's a very deterministic sort of bent to this whole thing. Well, and, but that's the whole problem, right? Because, like, authors know where it's going. For sure, yeah. And so, like, we know it has to play out a certain way. Mm. But that, that's hard to actually go back and say, like, is there really a choice? Well, because yeah, there is all, all, choice because... Yeah, in reality, there is, no, there is no choice because, <laughs> because the author decided what's going on. He made all the choices. <laughs> so that's, like, like, for me, that's the part where it gets harder to, to know for sure. But I, I agree that, like, there is a lot. Like, Vassin didn't have much choice. Somehow there's everything was set up for him yeah. to eventually be used later. Vassin right? was basically a tool in the whole thing. Yeah. The Oracle set him up, Mask set him up, uh, R- Riven even set him up to a point, uh, yep. Rivalin set him up, you know. Everybody's using Vason, and Vason never really makes a single choice until he gets to the point where he's the one that figures out that he can write the story. He doesn't have to yeah. use the story that's, that's written. Yeah. That right. Vason, he's such a tool. Well, that's what I felt for most of the book at the start, that it was really the... Not Vazen that was really the protagonist, but the other characters that were just moving stuff along the first part <laughs> till the end when, oh, okay, it's Vazen. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and, I th- and I wonder if that's not part of the point. Like, like this book is intended to introduce us to this character right. and, and maybe we'll get more Vazen stories in the future. But And so one of the things that kind of surprised me about the book was that Vazen was 30 years, 30-ish years old. Mm-hmm. Because he felt so like I know they they tried to protect him until he was big enough, but rarely in books do we wait till you're thirty. Yeah, especially in fantasy stories. Right, and then on top of it, he almost came across as kind of childish in some ways. Like, uh, uh, like you said, he didn't have a lot of. I think we were talking earlier about he didn't have a lot of interaction with uh, people, and particularly certain types of people, at least that we saw in the book. Well, yeah. you know, and, although on one hand he's he's really sort of naive about certain things, right, and innocent, but on the other hand he's also very much like the authoritative leader, right? You know, and so uh, sometimes he comes off very mature. He comes off very much like a, a 30, 34 year old, yes, you know, from the Abbey at least. And, and maybe that maybe and, and and actually I think maybe you're pointing out a strength uh, of this of the storytelling of the writing is that, because maybe that's the way it should be. You know, when it comes to interacting with the people of the Abbey. He's a, a source of authority and maturity, and when it comes for other people, he's not experienced there, and he is less mature. Right, and then on top of it, when he goes through the pond or whatever it is, the the portal, 
the portal and he comes out the other side, he's kind of called immature, like because he's just too ready to go. Yeah, but but he also doesn't feel like he's an experienced adventurer or anything. Like somehow he's a, right. he's, a he's a good fighter. Like and, and some of this doesn't make sense to me, right? Some of these characters is like you're literally playing on the battlefield of the gods, and like Jarek or Garuk or whatever you want to call him, Jarek. Where, where where does like he was a, a you know thinking in game terms he was a, a first or second level soldier one once upon a time and he was a hunter and now he he's shooting Mephistopheles in the neck I know like what <laughs> no <laughs> he he by that point him joining the party just sort of felt like he was a tag along that didn't really belong there at all mm. and never really felt like he belonged there yeah. and that gets used in the epilogue right. A bit, yeah. I mean, there's the there's yeah. I mean, he's like uh, Riven finds him and is like, you know, hey, you need friends. And as much as you would say, Vason and Orson are your friends, you're always sort of not on their level, you know? Right. They're like brothers, and you're just the Taiwan. Which actually is interesting because this is the first time we brought up Orson, and Orson was probably the one character I really enjoyed in this book. I thought Orson was fun. Yeah. Well, he was he was the he was the what what was he again? He was a cleric of mask or or yeah. something. Yeah. Well, he, he was, was a de- he was he, a deva, right? He, yeah, he was a, the the deva. Oh, that's that's right. He was he was and he a was deva. a follower of mask. I never really picked up on what class I would have called him. Vason uh, is such a tool, and Orson is such a deva. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and that drove me crazy because the audiobook, he he called him a diva. Yes, <laughs> and and I don't like that pronunciation of D E V A. Uh, are we not men? We are diva. Yeah. <laughs> um, but Orson um, – and, and part of me wanted to make him a monk and not by, yeah. by, by virtue of anything I necessarily saw in the story. But I knew he was related to um, the characters in the previous books that worked for Riven and they were monks. Well, doesn't he – he has the staff, right? I think he does have a staff, Yeah. Oh. And I felt like one time it was some sort of like flurry with the staff sort of thing, and it made me think monk. Yeah. yeah. I also felt there were maybe some Avenger in him. Yeah. <laughs> oh, sure. So, I always felt Avengers are monkish priests, chasers, and <laughs> type thing. So. Yeah, I mean, he never was- really channels any th- any divine power, but. Right. And there was a whole lot of avenging slash revenging going on. Yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Revenge was a definite – revenge and sacrifice seem to be the themes of the book. And on top of it, both the, the quote-unquote good guys and bad guys were doing it. We're getting revenge and, and sacrificing? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, and, and, and I think they set up um, – I think Kemp sets up – um, an interesting surprise because you get to a point like if you throughout the whole sort of series of books, Erebus Kale is always the first of Mask, uh, right. and, and he's number one, and, and then they they have to bring him back in order to to end the cycle. Like he's really important to this whole thing, and, and then you get to the point where okay, they've pulled all the divinity of Mask out, and and Kale is headed for it, and he's going to become the new Mask, uh, and then they he, then he doesn't. Right, Riven basically sacrifices himself and takes on the godhood so Kale can live as a man. Right, um, which you know is a bit of a swerve because I mean you expect that this whole thing was set up so that Kale 
would eventually become the new mask. Um, I think Riven makes a better mask, honestly, um, and he's more interesting uh, as a mask, or as, as a, the new mask. Um, but yeah, it, it, it gives you a bit of a swerve there, and it begs the question, so why did we need Kale? I mean, what, to, yeah. sta- to stab Asmodeus? I suppose, oh, he had to be there to sever all the, uh, the godhood of, of everybody. Is that right? Because mm. nobody else could have done that. I thought that was, I thought that was Vason that did that. No, because Vason was still reading, he was the light that kept uh, Shar from consuming the godhood. Okay. And so, and so Kale had to go and actually sever the godhood so, with Weavesheer. Mm. And, that, and that broke we- Weavesheer so that when he stabbed at, um, Mephistopheles with it, part of it broke off in him. Which I hope becomes a thing. I hope that we see that later on in one of the later books. That Mephistopheles still has this, you know, shard of Weavesheer stuck into him or something. Like, I want to see that in the adversary. Because that deals with, with devils and things, too. Yeah. Right. Who knows? Who knows? No. All right. So we've talked fate. We've talked sundering. Should we get into to the big glaring issue of the book? What is the big glaring issue of the book, Jeff? Where my women's at, yo? <laughs> there are virtually no female characters in this book. Half of the female characters you have are pregnant and die. And the other one is the evil goddess trying to literally consume the world. Which is just there in the Wait. background. and Yeah, and is more of a, of a setting feature re- than an actual character. And requires men to do everything for her. On- <laughs> yes, she does. <laughs> and then, well, you forgot the girls. Oh yeah, the, the the one the one female the one sort of sort of female characters who never have names um, that that make it to the end by sheer by sheer dint of their loyalty to their man, uh, who are specifically referred to and and anybody who want, doesn't is listening with children might want to turn the volume down a second referred to as bitches because they're dogs. Yep. You know? <laughs> But there, but every the the only it seems that the only role of female characters in the whole story is to die in order to motivate men. Like in, that's in, terrible. And in the and I and I don't need every book to I don't need need the book to like advance the cause of feminism or whatever. But I mean, it is glaring, and the realms are very much supposed to be a, a world of men and women are are you know equal in every way. So why is it that one hundred percent of the priests of the abbey are male? You know, every main character, every character with a name is male with the exception of L and then the people and, and, you know, the other mothers who die. Yeah, Vera and then uh, Uh, Brennis's uh, Brennis and and Rivlin's mom as in flashback. Right. I forgot her name. So, yeah. So, yeah, no. And it's (laughs) difficult. Go ahead. this book is very much a, a, a male power fantasy book. Absolutely. <laughs> so, and there were never so really ma- uh, major female characters in the previous books either, but for some reason it came off as more glaring in this one to me. Yeah. Well, and we did talk about it when we read the, the, the first trilogy. The original trilogy, yeah. But uh, what's the thing that was difficult for me too was like, so not only do we... Forgotten Realms has always been sold to me as... Tracy, you really should read this because women, men and women are equal and stuff. But, like, I'm reading the jerk or Garuk and L <laughs> sitting there talking about him going out and hunting. And it feels so much like the stories my mom had told me about how it was growing up with her dad. 
not that he was a bad guy, but just at that time period, men, the husbands often made decisions and didn't exactly consult the rest of their family. And we're just like, yeah, we're going to move now. It's not, it's not even that he didn't consult her. And that was jar- jarring to me as a married man. That right. Was, that was jarring to me because, like, it wasn't even that he didn't consult her or, or whatever. I think he would have just upright left without telling her if she hadn't woken up in time, you know? Yeah. <laughs> he was packed up and ready to walk out the door when she wakes up. And it's like, you weren't even going to let her know you were going to disappear for two, da- two days? Right. Yeah, no, he wasn't going to tell her. He he was hoping to sneak out because he didn't want to deal with having that conversation. And I'm just like, how can you be married? It was like at least nine years, and and feel like it was appropriate, like to just to just, to walk, just walk away, out. For two, walk out for two days, and not tell anybody where you're going. Right, <laughs> like it's kind of weird to me. And and there were a couple other, there were a few other things, like the very beginning scene with the the midwife and the priest. I know I, I wrote about that a little bit. Uh, it was weird to me that you needed a male priest and a, a female midwife and that the midwife never really gets a name. Or and, really does much. Right, and she doesn't do much. And then she does – she starts the cut and she helps deliver the child. But later on, it's always the priest that delivered the child. Yeah, it's like okay. he gets – she doesn't get the credit, but yeah. And in, and and it's described as mining the child out of her stomach, mm-hmm. and I don't know I don't know how when you guys read it, but like it's I've heard it's pretty common if for you to try to put yourself in 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 with characters, and of course like I I think it's not crazy that I was a little more with Vera there than with oh, the sure. guys. Oh, sure, <laughs> and, well, and, we were being told the perspective from her from her pers- or the story from her perspective, so. Right, and but on top of it, I'm not the one. Like, I'm not gonna have thoughts of, "Oh man, I hope my wife makes it through," because like that's something that he's kind of talking about in that sure. passage. Yeah. I'll well, and, and, I, and, and I hope I make it through. <laughs> yeah. No, and and I think, I think some of what we're getting in that um, is, is a relatively honest portrayal of, of a situation. Some of it's very much like, I, I don't know, maybe misinformed or whatever, right? Or or at least unfortunate that the midwife didn't get to do anything. Um, but some of it, I feel like maybe an honest portrayal of his experience because he, he, he recently, his wife recently had a child, you know, I, I, which I happen to know, um, from, from knowing him, uh, and, and he's his, you know, they've had several other children before that. And so he has the experience with his wife. So I, I wonder if he's not writing from his own experiences. No, and I totally think that, and I think that's yeah. why the overall feeling was of this concern about like the, the, the concern about her rather than the concern that she has. Yeah. I think that's fair. Uh, and then it did seem kind of strange to me, like, cause, cause he's setting up, um, uh, Derek. Yeah. Derek, as, yes. To be the, as, the adopted dad. It's suddenly like just kind of basically falling in love with her at first sight. Right. And then, and kind of pledging himself to her. Uh, it develops very quickly and doesn't, and, I think what makes it even more off for me is the the whole part where uh, he's described as holding her like you would a child, mm-hmm. uh, and like it's just like infantilizing her, and it's like I don't I don't get that. Well, and and again, I think that my only thought on that, and I'm not excusing yeah. it or anything, but my only thought on it is that. I wonder if it doesn't go back to his experience because I mean, I've been a father in the delivery room and I can see in that in that moment, in that situation, um, thinking, you know, 
my wife is is helpless, you know, and living at the mercy uh, of these people who are helping her out, you know. Um, so I can at least comprehend the perspective, if not question the word choice. You know what I'm saying? But I think sometimes that perspective is a little weird. No, sure. Like she's not exactly helpless, and I don't know. Well, but in that moment, she is helpless. You know, she, I mean, she's mid, she's mid birth. Um, she's, she's going to be dying or is dying or whatever. Uh, and there's nothing that she or anybody else can do about it. Well, but see, that's the thing. She's helpless. If you only think about whether or not she lives as being the point or, or like, uh, her agency, but she shows her, like, this is the problem. Like she makes this great moment that could be a great moment of, I'm going to sacrifice for my child. Sure. But it gets undercut by all the rest of it. I, I, I don't know. I, I just sort of felt like some of that was trying to um, impress upon us that she's making that sacrifice in, in a situation where she's helpless to do anything else, I guess is the way to put it. That she's not completely helpless, but she's helpless to, to you know, it's either, it's either the child or me. And she's, and she's so it's, 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 I think it's supposed to be a, a sad or touching moment that she's making that sacrifice. But when men make that sacrifice, it is portrayed differently. In this book? They, even in this book, they don't dwell on the hopelessness. They dwell on the person finding the courage to do what they need to do. Yeah. Yep. Uh, sometimes. I mean, I could, I could point to a, a, some spots in this book where I think that they dwelled on the hopelessness. When they looked at Saeed sacrificing himself to... to um, He's an evil character. He is. <laughs> but it's 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 sacrifice. But um, no, but it's a but heroic characters. Yeah, I, I, it's I th- about their decision. I, th- I think to you could argue inner strength. I think you could argue that when Riven sacrifices humanity to become to become the new god, there's there's a moment of sadness and helplessness. Of this is a horrible burden to take on, and I don't want you to have to to do that. Um, you know, I'm already I've already yeah. Been, he's been saying cursed. I'm taking I'm going to take this on. So that you don't have to, but she doesn't yeah. get that. Yeah. Well, she, gets- she says, "Cut me open," and they're like, "No, honey, we shouldn't do that to you." Oh, okay, I'll do it. Uh, I can't. The priest can't do it. So the midwife starts it, and then the priest takes over. Like at that point, I want her to just grab the knife and cut herself open. Because <sighs> that's what like a lot of the male characters do. Like he's yeah. whole. Sorry. Yeah, no, I I fully agree that uh, there is a difference between how usually heroic males and heroic females show sacrifice, including this book. Where basically, because to me, Riven, when he took on those, to me, he felt, here, look, I'll bravely take this for you. You should not be taking this. You should, so I'll, I'll, I'll. I'll man up and I'll take this. To use the expression. But yeah, for her, it's like, really? It should have been better. Yeah, I don't know. I guess my, my interpretation of the Riven taking on the Godhood thing was a lot more about the despair of the situation than it was about his, his heroism. Because he never portrayed himself as a heroic character, and I don't think he, he wants to be seen that way. Um, but that's, that's, I mean, that's a matter of all of us also, I think, projecting a bit of, a bit of our perspective on things too. So, well, but he also gets to live. 
He does. Oh no, absolutely no. The 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 fact that every female character who who does anything remotely heroic dies horribly uh, is not you know that is not lost on me. <laughs> no, I get that. Actually, and then it's a tangent, but uh, just you saying that also reminds me of the juxtaposition between uh, Garrick killing L and uh, Saeed with it with the bone demon. Oh, his brother. Yeah. Yeah, because he won't kill him. At least he won't kill him late until he can fight back. But uh, Garrick doesn't want to kill Al at first. And then when he, he realizes there's no saving her, he slices her throat open. Mm-hmm. Which is weird to me. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that, whole, that whole thing was really weird to me. Like, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know about that. That the whole I, I got to kill my wife thing, and and I mean I don't know what the better solution would have been on how to handle that. Uh, well, I yes I do. She should have lived, um, or she should have been. Or the kill one. her earlier when like. Sure. Or or you know what would have been better if she was the one out hunting, <laughs> and Jarek died. That would have made a much more interesting story. <laughs> well, or even if she's not the one out hunting, and I know there's the whole issue with the pregnancy thing, but sure. uh, when they decide, the two brothers decide that to leave both of them alive so that they can be together, even though she doesn't talk really after once uh, Vesson finds them. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I don't know how together they were. <laughs> she whispers something to him as, as, right before she dies, doesn't she? I, I, I thought she maybe. did. Yeah. Um, oh, something about like, that. Something, then, but imagine there was, if she there was a whole had, crazy thing about the haircut they were doing, right? And Jarek is, is slicing his own hair off in, in big ugly chunks. Yeah, because he's totally just going through a whole. Uh, he's like going he's crazy. going through his transformation. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, it, like if he had been the one that had been corrupted, and she was trying to save him, and then she decides to become the the Avenger, that could have been interesting too. I think it could have been, yeah. Uh, particularly because, like, you could easily have the the pregnancy thing could have been taken care of. Because the thing is, Garrick wasn't necessarily that all together during mm. the whole thing either. Sure. And it never was said how exactly. I don't think it was said exactly how pregnant she was. I, I got the impression it was just barely because she had yeah. just, she had just told him. Right. So I don't think he, she. I don't think she was you know showing at all or anything. Right. All right. So have we tackled the? Have we tackled our women? <laughs> I mean, I could go on, but I know. I think that Tracy is right about everything. That's usually a fair a fair thing to assume. Oh no! <laughs> no, own that. Come on, be the strong woman. Be confident. <laughs> <laughs> I do. I do have to uh, imagine that if um, if 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 it was L who was the hunter, and and she survived, then that would just lead to a uh, sappy romance between her and one of the other uh, male protagonists. Well, that would be unfortunate too. I think I don't think that that's necessarily where that story would have to go. Oh, I did have one more thing though. Okay. So I don't like how women. The women in the book were portrayed, and like I almost didn't finish reading it after the prologue. But I think so. Going back to the fact that this was supposed to originally be a trilogy mm-hmm. and get cut down to one book, 
I do wonder sometimes if he was over-relying on common tropes and stereotypes to instantly create that understanding among the mm. reader of what was going on. Sure. That maybe some of, some of that was was intentional because you're, you're playing back to archetypes? Right. And like while I don't necessarily agree with the choices, I can understand how a writer might do that because mm-hmm. you kind of – like he had to quickly – there was a bunch of characters in this book really. Yeah. yeah. Like maybe not as much as other ones but there were a lot, to, a lot of relationships to try to cement pretty quickly as to – uh, so you understand motivations because a lot of these motivations of these characters is heavily driven by their relationships to other people. Mm-hmm. Even as, so even sometimes people they haven't met yet, like uh, Vincent with his father Kale. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so and that that feels weird to me too. By the way. Oh. The, what the Kale Vincent thing? <laughs> like, what, I feel like they are in many ways different versions of the same character. Mm. And I'm I'm kind of curious where this goes from here. Well, I was just thinking when we were talking about the age thing, I don't know how much age difference. Oh, that's true. They might be close to the same age. Cause, so you've watched uh, Once Upon a Time? I, d- I do, yeah. yeah. Where uh, the, the daughter in the, the real world. The, the daughter and the parents are the same age? Yeah. <laughs> So I kind of felt like a little bit of that here, even uh-huh. though I didn't necessarily know their ages. Except, like, the, except uh, that Kale is so much more mature than he is, and, and much more world-weary, if nothing else. Right. You know? He's more, way more experienced. And, and that's the other thing, is that like, if they go on and make this – continue on with this story, you have Magadon and, and Kale from the old series, and then Vason, Jarek, and um, Orson from the new series, and – the ones from the old series are like way more powerful. Like they were literally taking on gods <laughs> right. and standing toe to toe with them. And, and the other group were, you know, hunters who got lucky, I guess, and shot Mephistopheles in the neck. Well, that's, that's what you can do with new D and D, right? I don't know how, uh, <laughs> I don't know how Jarek even like, how is Jarek the one who takes out Mephistopheles with Kale's help? But <laughs> I, I shot that that arc fiend almost god creature with some normal arrows three times and it fell down or ran away. <laughs> oh yeah, but there were other times where he shot stuff with three times and it just kept coming. I know. So <laughs> Mephistopheles sucks, I guess. He must be like a a level fifteen creature at best. He's magical, mystical, Mister Mephistopheles. <laughs> well, okay, I guess that answers it. <laughs> Uh, I would I would like to to um, interject that uh, having having read and reviewed uh, a number of D and D novel trilogies, that if if more authors would uh, condense their trilogies into one book, uh, that would fix like many of my problems with most <laughs> trilogies. Although I feel like this one probably should have been two books. I think we could have gotten because yeah. I, I feel like the, the last third no, or so. I disagree. I, that's I, a, I think that's a, I think just just one book, just <laughs> one book was was just was just fine. Here, here's my reasoning for that though: is that I feel like, like I mentioned before, I feel like the last third was a was a completely different story. Like it was it was hinted at earlier, but it, but it like once they do the whole Bone Devil thing at the Abbey and take on the brothers, then the story completely shifts gears and turns into a completely different thing and feels very different. Right. I could argue with you. But I don't remember the last third of the Well, there you go. I mean, basically from, from the point where, 
where the Bone Devil comes out and and they they run off to the Shadowfell. I feel like that could have been a, a stopping point for book one, and then book two could have picked up from Riven in the Shadowfell battling Mephistopheles. I feel like that could have been a lot more. Um, I feel like that could have been explained more. Like there's a lot from from the point that they get to the, go to the Shadowfell to the point that they that they stop the cycle of night and save the day. I feel like there's a lot that they just sort of rush through really fast that could have been better explained. Like the whole Magadon thing, Magadon shows up in like what chapter two or three and then doesn't show up again until like the second to last chapter when he shows up with the giant city and crashes on top of them. Well, they had that telepathic like where he's like, Oh, I need you. Will you come here? Right. Yeah. There was um, the, you're right. There was that paragraph. <laughs> <laughs> well, that. and then the other thing is, is it, it's kind of difficult because you go from within under half, about half a week or so, uh, they're running away from Shadowvar a little bit because mm-hmm. they have a hard time dealing with them to dealing with Bone, uh, was it, uh, Spike? Devils. The Spike Devils? Spine, spine Devils. Devil. Yeah, Spine, spine Devils. devils. They, set they set everything on fire, but they can take, like, the, some of those quills go into them. Yeah, can I, can I point out that those Spine Devils in the current playtest packet, are level like two or three creatures. Do they set stuff on fire? I don't remember. And they, yeah, so they could have been unique ones or whatever. No, 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 but it's just weird that like, they can take the spines from the spine devil suddenly <laughs> because now they have magic. Yeah. The book does feel like they do, throughout the whole book, a bunch of power leveling just to yeah. go, okay, okay, we need to go so we can deal with that go to do planar hopping and oh okay i'm there yeah powered by the blood of women yeah <laughs> <laughs> that is what women are good for well and that's and that's yes. kind of that's kind of my thing right i mean the first two-thirds of the book is basically Vason leaving the abbey and then coming back like it, it that's all. I mean, it's him walking they didn't around. Get very far. No. They don't. You no, know, they don't. And they don't even go very far. It's him leaving no. and then coming back. And then after that, suddenly, it, you know, they go from that really t- small area of ground to cover to oh yeah. And from there, we're going to go straight to the Shadowfell and then to this big uh, shadow maelstrom where where Shar is stuck in the middle of it. Like suddenly, it becomes way more fantastic. And there's a flying city crashing into it. Which also, I don't know, what does that have to do with anything? Like, would the story have played out any different if Sackers hadn't crashed into things? I don't know, but it was awesome. <laughs> well, yeah, it's cool to crash a giant city into things, but yeah, that, that also is what makes me wonder. But if, he needed a downfall. Who, who needed a downfall? The, uh, Kemp. Kemp. Because because oh. <laughs> because uh, she wanted the mother wanted to be part of his downfall. But what did that have to do with Sackers? Because the city Br- Brynis Brynis didn't crash the the city into him. That was Magadon. But Brynis says that she was involved in the city crashing and killing him. Killing them. Or supposedly killing them. I don't know. By the way, bring up your question about the, the, the holy symbol because I, I don't have an answer. Okay. So this may be just me getting a little confused. But it felt like at one point uh, Vaisin uses his holy, tarnished holy symbol – and then a few chap- like a few paragraphs later, another guy has it and is using it to scry for him. Well, th- okay, I, that one I can explain because he lost it in the battle with the Shadowvar, um, in outside the cave, mm-hmm. and he had a holy symbol on his shield, and he was using the holy symbol on his shield to 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 do his his healing and stuff. 
But is that tarnished? Uh, no, it's a different one. Right. So, but the thing is, is it specifically says it's his, his tarnished symbol. The the part where I got confused was because at the end, when mm-hmm. he, when he's reading the the you know, I'm talking leaves. about this near the end. Oh, okay, yeah. So at the end, when he's reading reading about it in the, in the from reading from the leaves of night and writing the story, right? Um, he they specifically describe him having the tarnished holy symbol. Yeah. That I thought Brennus had because Brennus used it to scry him. Right. So when did he get it back? I, I, That's what I mean. I, I, I don't know. I don't know if I missed that. Brennus scryed him. I think he had it, and then Brennus had it. Had something. It had a rose. Uh, yeah, holy symbol that he was using to scry. And then yeah. Mason had it again. But I might have just missed a detail somewhere. And I might have too, and I listened to it twice, but... I don't remember the detail. I do remember the rose symbol. Like, oh, cool. Rose I mean, there, there might have been a throwaway line or whatever where... Because where, they were all there on the battlefield at Ordulin. Brynis could have given him the, the holy symbol because he recognized that it was needed to defeat his brother. But I don't remember that. Jeff, do you remember anything? You're, you usually have a pretty good eye for detail. Um... Yeah, no, okay. I don't remember the last part of the. Is this is this uh, the book where um, someone <laughs> someone kept saying write the story? Yes, yes, that was the book. That I I, I kept hearing that, and I kept re- remembering um, uh, the uh, burning angels, the the draw the rune thing, the brimstone angels. Yeah, brimstone angels in, in, yes. in, the, in the library. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. The 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 last book, someone kept repeating, "Draw draw the rune, draw the rune," and I every, every time I heard, "Write the story." You're, I'm sleep deprived, so <laughs> I think you mentioned hi. that. Hi. <laughs> um, yeah. So yeah, I don't remember. I don't, yeah, the last third of the book is cut, like, how did this book end? <laughs> uh, Riven, yeah, it, it's, be- it's, Riven it's, becomes it's a god. It's coming back to me. Wasn't wasn't there like a part where like he like get some sort of feather pen and he's basically like, like writing Char out of existence or something. I think, well, he wasn't writing Char out of existence, but he kept writing something about uh, a monitor and Lathander and the light. <laughs> and then he started radiating light and the light kept, yeah. kept Char away from the, the godly essence of mask so that it could be reformed into one person to become the new mask. And as long as there's a living mask, then Char can't, can't restart the cycle of night. Okay, yeah, it's it's vaguely coming back. To yeah, because because part of her incarnating was is consuming her herald, and Mask figured that out and decided he didn't want to be consumed. And it's that's what that's when this whole thing started. Like four probably a ago. reasonable reasonable decision. Yeah, and that, I was kind of, that and that's really a storyline that started four books ago. I think if not, Char, if not Char should not make her herald the god of scheming and secrets. Then, if if she doesn't want that to happen. <laughs> well, it, it it worked out for her in the previous world she consumed, but that's again that's part of uh, part of another book, and they they hinted at it in this book, but they 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 make it clear that this is not the first time she's done this, and other times she's you know completely destroyed worlds. It's a, it's a big it's a big multiverse. You know what? She should team up with uh, Thariston. I'm sure that they would get along Swimmingly. famously. Yes, they would. <laughs> I would read, I would read that trilogy. <laughs> Char and Tarzan together having a whole good time Tracy you were saying something I was a little surprised by the description of Char putting a tentacle down uh, was it Rivalin's throat yeah because Char had the two uh, people 
in Tentacles when the Tentacles came out. Yeah, no, he she got um, uh, Riv- Riven and Mephistopheles, right? I don't remember. She sort of surrounded them in her darkness or whatever, and was drawing the the divine essence out of them. I just know she put the tentacles down mm-hmm. one of them, one of their throats, and I was kind of surprised. Yeah, and and I I think I I don't know what. I don't know if she was doing – I think later on we, we discover she was doing the same thing with, with Rivalin. Like all three of them that had part of the essence of Mask, she was pulling the divinity out, divinity out of them because if she could consume it, she could incarnate as Mask or as right. – you know, in the world, not as Mask. And then, then the cycle of night would be over and the whole world would be destroyed. Right. I found it interesting as, as a Realms lore fan that Shar is one of the original two Realms gods. In the beginning, there were two gods. There was Shar and there was Selune. In the in the real beginning, or in the or in the backstory beginning, made up after the fact. I, as I believe that, I, I don't know. I don't know when this was created. I don't know if it was retconned at some point. But this is the the origins of the world as as I understand it. Mm. Um, and those are the two original gods. You know, it was the darkness and then the light, the moon that provides light in the darkness. Um, so I want to know if Shar was doing all of this crazy stuff, where was Salune? Like this is her ancient primal enemy. Why wasn't she doing anything about this? Why is it up? To, I mean, she forgot. I guess <laughs> she was busy that day. <laughs> she's she, maybe she's doing something with her chosen in a, in a different book. And, yeah. she, and she she played a role in a former Brimstone Angels book. Um, because was it? Tam? Yeah, she had, she had a cleric. Yeah, Tam has yeah, a, yeah. Tam's a, a Selene cleric. So maybe, maybe we'll we'll find out in the adversary. Maybe what what she was doing. She she was busy keeping um, uh, Asmodeus's daughter, whatever her name is, Farida. No, that's not Asmodeus's no, no, no. daughter. Oh, 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 uh, oh the stepsister, right? Glacia. Uh, uh, Glacia, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Glacia is the, the, the villain of the Brimstone Angels books. Right. Yes. Is that, is that who the adversary is going to be? Is it going to be Glacia? It might be. Or mm-hmm. it, it might be Asmodeus himself because that's so, – I believe that's a appellation that's commonly applied to, to the devil. I suppose. Mm. I'm really, I, and now, now we're getting off into to thinking about the future, but I'm really looking forward to the adversary because oh, one, of the, one of my biggest issues with um, the Brimstone Angels characters in the past was the immaturity. And now they're going to have to jump forward in time and grow up a little bit, and I'm looking forward to that. Yeah. <laughs> so, Although the, yeah. the epigraph that talks about each book, each each paragraph is in control. It's like for Godborn, when, when the shadows ascend and hell's sworn covenant unswerving, the blighted brothers hunt and the Godborn appears and Rose's blessed abbey reared, arising to loose the golly spark. But then for the adversary the paragraph is when the harvest time comes in hate fuel mission grim underbending the shadowed reapers search the adversary vies with fiend wroth enemies opposing the twisting schemes of hell so no one think it's asmodeus or devilish or whatever hmm. it seems to be opposing hell itself hmm. i just had a thought i look forward to it well, you have thoughts with all of these characters coming forward wait 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 do- wait are women in your culture allowed to have original thoughts? I'm not sure. I have okay. to ask Fred. Uh, <laughs> if all these characters are coming forward, they should do real world uh, Forgotten Realms, whatever. 
How do you meet a real world friend? When they get together, things get real. Oh, oh, real world like the MTV reality show. Yeah. (laughs) Where where Drist and and Erebus or Vason and uh, Farida and all them are living in an apartment together. Because I don't, like, we all think of these as, like, characters that we like. But I don't know if they could all get along. In that same idea, uh, years upon years ago in Dragon Magazine, Ed Green would write issues... Yeah, articles where Elminster, Mordenkainen, uh-huh. Valimar would meet up at his place yeah. there and talk about, and they would make comments about the the the, the real world. Mm-hmm. I remember some was, of those. Oh, because they, was, because they was, weren't just they were meeting at at Ed Greenwood's actual home. Yeah, that was that was the setting. Yeah. So and he would bring them donuts and things. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, I remember those. Yeah. No, no, but now clearly we've all gone yeah. sleep deprived and we've hit an hour, so I think it's a good time to sort of wrap up the conversation. So I want to say thank you, Eric Paquette. No problem. Uh, thank you to Jeff Wynn. Hey, hey. And oh, and Jeff Wynn wanted to say something before we go. Oh man, do I ever? <laughs> About Appendix N. All right. Well, first of all. Uh, and this is one of those tangents I was I was, I was talking about. Uh, if you if you like oracles, uh, the Pathfinder role playing game has an oracle class, and uh, you can you can uh, be uh, di- disabled and be a, be a channel uh, of your of your uh, favorite fa- favorite god. So uh, there's that. Um, second, uh, with with uh, the help of uh, the Tome Show, I am planning to start my own podcast. And I am calling it uh, tentatively uh, the Appendix N podcast because I don't think anyone else has uh, called their podcast the Appendix N podcast yet. Uh, basically, I'm going to go through uh, Gary Gygax's original Appendix N uh, and very much uh, like the format of, of this show, uh, I'm going to go through every, every author that inspired uh, Gary Gygax to create uh, Dungeons & Dragons. Um, in chronological order, uh, so we're starting with uh, Edgar Rice Burroughs. Uh, I am currently reading uh, A Princess Mars from uh, his uh, John Carter of Mars series. And uh, Gygax also references uh, I'm trying, uh, uh, Pellucidar and the Venus series. So I'm going to be looking into those. Uh, I'm... I, I, right now, I think we're going to record uh, hopefully in in February. Okay. Uh, right, right now, I'm really not certain. Like, you know what what the shape of the show is going to be. You know, like, are we going to devote one episode to an author or or, or two episodes, or you know, are they going to be an hour, half an hour? What you know, what are we going to do? So, but I I would really like to get uh, a a co host and and some guests. So if you are if if you're interested in reading some classic uh, pulp fiction, uh, if you're if you already know something about Edgar Rice Burroughs and, and would like to contribute, because we're we're all we're we're, we're also going to go into the biographical information of these of these authors, um, and I can I can uh, read a Wikipedia page, or I can have someone who actually knows something uh, come on the show and and uh, and uh, tell us so. Um, yeah, so I'm just putting it out there. If if you would like to read along with us, and if you would like to contribute, uh, 
uh, please uh, contact uh, you know Jeff at, at at the Tome Show, and he will he will forward you to me, and uh, we can we can get together and we can uh, hash out some ideas. That's right. So if you want to help Jeff out with that, email me at thetomeshow at gmail dot com, and I will pass along what needs to be passed along. Uh, and we also want to thank our listeners. Those of you who are out there using our affiliate links, uh, as the holiday season has either just passed by or is just on its way, depending on when you're listening to this and when it gets published, um, thank you for using the, your uh, doing your Amazon shopping through our affiliate link or your D&D PDF shopping through our affiliate link uh, on the website at thetomeshow.com. That helps, uh, helps us you know, get a little pittance to pay our bills. All of that kind of stuff helps us. So if you walked away with a bunch of Amazon gift cards this Christmas, um, you know, swing on over and spend them through the Tome Shows, and you you link and you pay the same same thing, but we get a little cut. Yeah, it works out really well. Uh, and if you'd like to contact us for any reason, uh, you can use the email address that Jeff just gave, the Tome Show at gmail.com or call us on our biz line at nine one nine Biz Tome. That's nine one nine B I Z T O M E. And I mentioned before, we're at thetomeshow.com. That is our thoughts on the Godborn, as mixed as they are. I think there was positives that we really liked, and there were things that that graded. Is that fair? Sure. All yeah. right. Join us next month as we read the first half up to the end of Chapter 12 of The Adversary by Aaron M. Evans. Woohoo! Yay! I'm on the wall.